Awesome. Well, good morning. I think we need to cut back Courtney's coffee intake just a little bit. Um, she seems to be a little hyper. Uh, um, but the funny thing is, and Courtney wasn't here last week. Uh, last week, remember Psalm 136? I had you reiterate, uh, for his steadfast love endures forever. We did it 30 26 times, Courtney. So you just carried that forward into this Sunday. And so, you know, I think the Lord wants you to know something. We didn't even talk about that. So he is good. And his steadfast love endures forever. Hallelujah. What a great, great God. Well, good morning. My name is Bill Walker. Uh, For those of you who may not know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church. And we are finishing up a series today called, Who Do You Think You Are? Uh, The point of the series is simply this. In the Bible, there are a number of descriptions or names that God gives to his people. And from those names, we can understand better who we are and actually what he wants for us to be doing. And so, obviously, we looked at I am a disciple. We talked about what it meant to be an apprentice of Jesus. There's an intellectual component to that, but it's much more praxis, much more practical, a lot of hands-on. I am an ambassador. We talked about having the ministry of reconciliation that Christ has given to those who know him. We talked about being a master masterpiece, or better still, I am the master's piece because he has invested his value in me. And then last week together, we looked at being an overcomer. Not only positionally, eternally are we overcomers in Christ, but practically and presently, we can overcome by faith in the one who is already victorious. Today, we're going to look at this issue of being salt and light. I purposed to keep this discussion till this morning because today is the official end of summer. And everybody said? Yeah, I thought that would be some of your responses, yes. But what today also marks, excitedly for me, it is the kickoff to football season. So on Thursday, Thursday night around 8.30, uh, I'm going to be very close to my television set. I'm going to watch the Patriots unfurl yet another banner. They actually had to reconfigure the stadium to get a fifth banner to fit. But the cool part is, if you actually watch, they'll, open, they'll drop that fifth banner, but you'll notice they now have space for two more banners to go up there too. And who knows what this year may hold. But it's the official kickoff to football season this week. But it's also the official kickoff, as Dennis said, to the fall ministry season of the church's life. This is when things get really exciting in the church. We're going to be doing all kinds of cool things. Everything from having this bacon fest to back to church Sunday. Soon we'll be talking uh, about Candy Town. And then we'll even be talking Christmas before you know it. Yes, he said the C word. (gasps) Christmas is just around the corner. This is how life works. But this is the official kickoff to the very busy season called the church ministry season. So I have kept this discussion of being salt and light until today. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to join me this morning in Matthew chapter 5. And trust me, you will want your Bible this morning. So if you did not bring your Bible, I want to encourage you to reach under the chair in front of you to pull out that nice black Bible with nice big print and turn to page 810. Page 810 in these worship Bibles. Today we're going to focus in on the words of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 5. 
in something called the Sermon on the Mount. I spoke on the Sermon on the Mount in depth last year during the um, summer season. And this happens to come out of that, that teaching. And so, I'll project it here, but this is the only scripture really, well, one other verse, but we're going to actually look at many scriptures. That's why I'm encouraging you to get your Bibles out. Uh, so just allow me to kind of speak into this with just a little bit of knowledge. And then I want to point out some things here. So we're in Matthew chapter 5 together, page 810 in your worship Bibles, in verse 13. So, it says this, you are the salt of the earth. Now, the word you here in this statement is actually in the plural. And so Jesus is not saying individually, you are. He is saying, and if he came from Georgia, Jesus would put it like this. Y'all are the salt of the earth. So he's making kind of a comment of the group. Y'all are the salt of the earth. But notice what he goes on to make. He, makes, he asks this question. If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, everybody knows, and a lot of commentators have pointed this out, that sodium chloride doesn't lose its taste. If sodium chloride is sodium chloride, it is going to be salty. But the reality is in Jesus' day, often it was not pure Often it was diluted with other minerals or part of the earth. So it would often lose its flavor and its savor. And that's what he's talking about. So if the salt has lost its flavor and its savor, he goes on to say this, it's no longer really good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled under people's feet. So y'all are the salt of the earth. Your life is to influence through the flavor and the savor of the Savior, the lives of other people. If you don't, then it's largely worthless, is what he's saying. Then he goes on to say this in verse 14. You are the light of the world. Now here again is the plural. Y'all, y'all are the light of the world. And then he gives two basic statements. These are simple truisms, so see if you can follow along here. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Do you agree? So you got a hill, and you got a city, and you got probably walls, and, and at night you probably got torches, and you got candles, and you, or lamps, and they're all lit. It's pretty hard to hide a city, don't you agree? And so a city set on a hill is just there. It's obvious. That's his point. And then he also tries to back it up with just another truism. He said this, people don't light a lamp and put it under a basket. That would be foolish, don't you think? The point in lighting the lamp is to have light. If you lit the lamp, why would you cover up the light? Because the point of lighting the lamp is to have light, right? Okay. And so he basically says this. Nobody puts it under a basket, but you put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. That's the point of lighting the lamp. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works, your good deeds, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And just on that last statement... Glory to your Father who is in heaven. Everything has been made by God to bring him glory. Humanity has been created for the express purpose to glorify God. And so he's basically giving us these statements. So, so allow me to, to simply summarize. 
What we have in these verses 13 through 18, or 13 through 16 here in Matthew chapter 5 is a very, very simple illustration. Very simple illustration. Jesus is referring to the influence that the lives of his followers are meant to have in the lives of individuals that they have contact with. Seems pretty obvious, doesn't it? Pretty straightforward. Now, now the challenge becomes this. Different people, because of the simplicity of this, have, I think, invested it with, with meaning that I don't necessarily think Jesus has intended. By that, I mean this. Some people look at these verses, 13 through 16, and what they see here from the lips of Jesus is what they would call a cultural mandate. A mandate to engage and transform the culture. Or some churches are using this to talk about we're going to change the community because Jesus said we're to be salt and light. And so a lot of churches have jumped on that bandwagon. We're all about transforming the culture, transforming the community, and we're going to do it because Jesus told us to. And the challenge I have is really, is that what Jesus is saying here? Because if Jesus is calling us to a cultural mandate of engaging the culture, of the transformation of the culture then this is the only place in the entire New Testament it says that. So are we putting too much emphasis on what Jesus said by giving it too much weight in an area that it necessarily didn't intend it? So that's one way I think people look at this, not necessarily correctly. And another way this is often looked at is, is that people look at this as, you know, be good, do good, and it will bless everybody. And so it's, it's kind of the idea of, of, and I wrote the word down because it's, it's one that tends to be used a lot. It's, it's the idea of the common good or the general welfare. So literally, everything a believer does, uh, whatever they do, is to be good and do good. And by doing all this being good and doing good, we just make a better world. And, and so a lot of people have taken it that way. And under that banner comes so many things. You know, uh, I'm going to encourage you to go to um, Franklin Graham's website, to go to Samaritan's Purse. And I want you to go there, and I would love for you to click donate to help the people down in Houston. That's a good thing. We should do that. They need help. But is that what Jesus is saying? Um, other people look at this and they say, you know, I, I give to Jerry's kids or I give to St. Jude or, or I give to the animal shelter or uh, 91.9 WGTS has this special thing they do on Thursdays called the drive through difference. You know, if we do all these things, it's, it's for the general welfare, the common good. So if we just do all this stuff, it's what Jesus wants. I have a hard time. I got to admit, I have a hard time believing that going through Chick-fil-A, and come on, let's be honest, most people go through Chick-fil-A to pay for the person behind them, right? That's how that works. Maybe it's McDonald's once in a great while, but usually it's Chick-fil-A. So I'm going through Chick-fil-A, and I'm sitting there in my car, and I'm looking behind me, and I'm going to pay for the person behind me. And the person behind me happens to be driving a BMW. And they're really dressed to the nines, and they look really sharp, and uh, I'm paying for their number one chicken sandwich with an extra-large sweet tea and an extra-large fry. And as I put the money through the window, is that what Jesus is saying? 
So as I look at what this is meant by salt and light, we hear it used all the time. All the time. And it's used for cultural engagement or it's used for just doing good. But what is it that Jesus is really saying here? You know, I've thought a little bit about this and I've asked just a couple of questions of the text. And, And one of the things that comes out to me is this. If being salt and light has come to mean virtually anything and everything we do, then does it really mean anything? Think about it. Somebody said this, if everything matters, then nothing really matters. And if everything's important, then nothing's really important. And I think that the danger here is actually what Jesus was warning against in our text. Think about it for just a second with me. So if we are just kind of do good, be good, oh, look, I got salt. And I got a light. And so, you know, we're just kind of going through our day and, you know, I, I picked up those, those paper towels that were on the floor in the, in the restroom. And, and I, I did the drive through difference. And uh, am I getting anybody? And, uh, and uh, so I'm just kind of, oh, sorry about that, Ennis. <laughs> and I'm just kind of going around just doing a few nice things here and there. And, and you know, don't, I won't get you. Please, not in your eyes. That would be really painful, wouldn't it? And so I'm just kind of going around just doing a little here and a little there. But what we're doing in just doing this I think is we have diluted the power of, of what Christ is talking about. I'll get you a good man. There we go. <laughs> you see, there's not enough saltiness in just general do good, be good that has any real savor or flavor for the Savior. It's all just kind of thin. It's all kind of, you know, it's diluted. It really has no intensity or impact when we do it that way. And it's a little bit like that if we consider the idea of light. You know, it, it's kind of just this broad spectrum. It, it's a, it's, you can see it, but you really can't. It has no real definition or impact. And it, you might as well just put it under a bushel because it has no impact when we do such a, a vast thing like this. Now think of it like this. I'll use Courtney as an illustration because she's sitting right in the front. Now think of it like this. Rather than just this generalized, do good, be good, community, cultural, earth, world stuff, if we actually took it and we focused it, and we, we found a few individuals that were really willing to pour our lives in. <laughs> so all of a sudden, we're having some meaningful impact on a particular life or two or three because we have focused on the idea of being his salt, his light in a life and not necessarily in the general culture. So that's one of the questions I have. The salt tends to be so indiscriminate that it has no flavor, or the light is so diffused that it might as well be hidden under a basket. The second thing is this. If being salt and light in a general good, uh, general good, merely being done in the earth and in the world, let me ask you, who then glorifies God? Because the goal of this is that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it's not talking about the culture, because the culture doesn't glorify God. And it's not talking about the earth of the world, because they don't glorify God. Who is it that glorifies God? Who is it that glorifies God? 
individuals glorify God. Not cultures, not communities, not the earth, not the world, but people glorify God. And so I really think that it's not really this kind of generalized do good, be good. I don't think it's even community involvement. I think salt and light is intentionally being given to us in this illustration that we would learn to savor and flavor the lives of people for Christ and light the way to him so that they may glorify him with their lives. I think that that's really what's being put forward here. Now... Let me tell you why. Let me just say this. There is no real meaning apart from context. We determine meaning based upon context. So what we need to do now is actually start looking at the scripture, the near context, the far context, to see whether or not that stands up to the scrutiny of scripture. Because I'm not just giving you an idea and you're going to say, well, that makes sense. Well, I think it makes sense, but I don't want you to say, yeah, it makes sense. I want you to say, oh, that's what the Bible says. That's what I want you to get. So I'm going to do something interesting. I'm going to work on the context in the next few moments. And in order to do that, we're going to ask a few questions of this text. And then what we're going to do is we're going to jump into the larger context of the book of Matthew to answer it. So here we go. Question number one. Who is speaking here in Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16? Okay. Uh, good, good, good guess. We're getting there. Second, second thing we're going to ask it is, well, who is really being spoken to when we talk about salt and light? And then the third question that I kind of like to bring to bear, and I think this is important, what is the good influence really all about? What is the good influence he's talking about here, the salt, the light? What is it really about? Why? What's the point? Okay, so... To answer the first two questions, and there's no, twi- no trick question here, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. That will answer the first two questions. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 say this. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and he and taught them, saying. So notice, we have he, he, And he, who's he? Okay, you guys are good. You you really nailed this whole investigating scripture stuff. That's good. It's Jesus. So who is speaking here? Jesus, that's right. Who's Who's being spoken to? So we have his disciples came to him. And also there are crowds present. So Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples, but the crowds are there as well. And when you get to the end of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, you discover that Jesus gives a very powerful evangelistic appeal to follow him, to trust him. So Jesus' goal is to speak to the disciples and to make the other people hearing him his disciples. So really, the answer is his disciples. So Jesus is speaking, right? Right? Okay, good. We got that figured out. And he's largely speaking to his disciples, correct? Okay. You're good. Now, the question I have is this. Who is Jesus? And what's a disciple? I think we kind of just feel like we know the answers. But actually, 
Matthew has set us up. If you have your Bibles with you, I want you to notice that prior to Matthew chapter 5, there's something called Matthew chapter 4. And then there's Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 1. <gasps> so what I want you to see in the next few moments is that Matthew has gone to a great bit of detailed work to clarify exactly who this Jesus truly is and what it means to be his disciple. Based upon that, we will be able to answer the third question and I think answer the question of what is truly salt, what is truly light. So I'm going to do something a little strange in the next few moments. I'm going to walk you through Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 2, Matthew chapter 3, Matthew chapter 4. That's why I encourage you to get your Bibles out because I'm not putting any more scripture up here. We're just going to hit the scriptures. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you how Matthew has positioned Jesus, this one sitting on this mount, very carefully in the eyes of the people and in our eyes. And what he gives us is 19 pictures, count them, 19 pictures of who this Jesus really is using nine Old Testament references to help support his case. Ready? Set? I'm going to run through this very quickly. I took too long in the first service. I don't have that long now. So we're going to move right along. So if you have your Bible open, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1, notice with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We have four pictures right there of who Jesus Christ really is. Number one, he is what? Jesus. Jesus. Say that with me. Jesus. The word is actually Yeshua. It is the Old Testament name, Joshua. And it, it means literally Savior. His name means what he is. So his name is Jesus. Number one, he is the Savior, Yeshua. Number two, he is Christ. He is Jesus Christ. Did you know Christ is not his last name? That's not his last name. I am Bill Walker. Walker is my last name. But for Jesus, the term Christ is actually a title. In, it's, in Greek, it's Christ. In Hebrew, it's Messiah. And the word Messiah or the name Christ means the promised one, the anointed one of God. So, here we go. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. And he was promised to be the son of David. Notice that, son of David. When David was on the earth, God promised David that he would give him a descendant who will reign on the king or on the throne of David forever. He was given this promise, and that promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the eternal Davidic king. Not only that, he is also the son of Abraham. Remember Abraham? Remember Abraham way back there in Genesis? Abraham was told by God, your descendants will be like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky, and the guy's wife was barren. How, oh, how does that even work? Hey, God, is this a joke? In fact, Sarah laughed. No, it's not a joke. The reality is this. There was one coming, the seed of Abraham, who ultimately through faith in him would make the descendants of Abraham like the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And that one, the seed, is Jesus Christ, the promised seed to bless the nations. That's the son of Abraham. So he is the savior. He is the promised one. He is the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that would bless the world. And now verses 2 through 17. We have a very exacting genealogy, a very exacting genealogy. But I want you to notice why. Verse 17 says this. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the what? The Christ is 14 generations. 32 generations are enumerated there, but every single one of those generations was designed to bring about the Christ. The Christ. They are all enumerated. They all live their lives for the express purpose to bring about the Christ. Jesus Christ is the center of all history. That's what he's saying here. Everyone who lived before him was part of the process to exalt him. And when he died and rose again, everyone who's lived after him is designed to look back to exalt him. Jesus Christ is the center of history. In fact, Colossians says this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. For by him, Jesus All things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ is the center of history. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. He is the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that would bless the nations, and Jesus is the very center of all history. That's halfway through chapter one. Are, we, are you with me? Are you with me? Or should we keep going? Come on, let's pick up the speed a little bit, because I'm, I'm slowing down here. We've got to get this thing going. And so not only that, but he is also the perfect man. Now, this is the first reference from the Older Testament that Matthew uses. This is the first of nine. We'll actually touch on all of those. The first of nine, and it's found in verse 23. Verse 23 of Matthew chapter 1 says this, quoted from Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and she shall bear a what? A son, the perfect son of God. I mean, the Holy Spirit through operation put in the womb of Mary someone who would not have a sin nature, and he was born the perfect, perfect man. But not only was he the perfect man, but it says, and he shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? He is God of very God. Second person of the Trinity brought into humanity through the womb of the Virgin Mary. He is perfect man, perfect God, fully man, fully God in one person, and his name is Jesus. This is who this one is. Matthew is preparing us for that one who's going to sit on the mountain and talk. And he's getting our hearts ready to hear what he has to say. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. He is the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that will bless the nations. He is the center of human history. He is perfect God, and he is perfect man. Now, chapter 2. Finally, chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have the second of the Old Testament references connected to this person called Jesus, and it's found in verse 6. Notice, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judea, uh, by no means are the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Micah 5, 2. Not only is he the Savior, the promised one, the eternal Davidic king, the seed that will bless the nations, the center of human history, perfect man, perfect God, but he's also the shepherd of the weak and the broken, the wounded, and the hurting. You see that in the beginning of the, of, of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you if, blessed are you if, all that wounding, all that pain, all that suffering in Jesus has come to alleviate it because he's with them. 
And that's the beauty of what it's saying here. Jesus is the shepherd of the weak. All right. He's not only the shepherd of the weak, but he is also the worship of the wise. Because it says that wise men came from the east. In verse 11 of chapter 2, follow me, verse 11, chapter 2. And going into the house, these wise men, when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, it says they fell down and they what? They worshipped him. Now, these were the the magi. These were the brilliant men of the day. These were men of science, men of astronomy. These were men who were strong in the scriptures. These were wealthy kings. And they came and they fell down before a two-year-old. He is the worship of the wise. Moving right along, we have this very weird description. Why is it even in here? Let me explain. Verse 13 of chapter 2. Now when they had departed, that's the wise men, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he said, listen, I want you to rise up and take the child and his mother and flee to where? Egypt. Why? Why Egypt? Man, that is one long, hot journey down through the Sinai Peninsula to get all the way over to the delta where Egypt was. Because there was someone else who was in Egypt at one point, and it was the people of Israel under bondage. And and under that bondage, Moses came in and he led the children of Israel out of bondage from Egypt. And what he is saying here is that there is a new Moses. There is one who is coming to inaugurate a new exodus. And that's who this one is. Notice the quote from Hosea chapter 11 and verse uh, verse 1 in verse 15 here. And it says this. It said, um, and thus it was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Jesus is now inaugurating a new exodus out from not the bondage of Pharaoh, but from the bondage of sin and the taskmaster of Satan. And he is going to set his people free through his death. It's a brand new exodus that's being initiated by this one. Oh my gosh, can you see him? Can you see him? He is the Savior. He is the promised one. He is the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that shall bless the world. He is the center of human history. He is perfect man, perfect God. He is the shepherd of the weak. He is the worship of the wise. He is the one who inaugurates a brand new exodus. But that's not all. He goes on and it says this in verse 16. And this is ugly. This is gross. It says, and then Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men. He became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. In all the region, there were two-year-old and under, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. And then it says this. He's quoting from Jeremiah 31. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Why that strange verse in the middle of this tragedy? Because back in Jeremiah chapter 31, you discover that the children of Israel have been taken off into deportation. And he was promising that there was coming a day where they would be no longer in exile, but that they would be renewed to their God. And in Jeremiah chapter 31 is not only this ugly statement, by the time you get to chapter 31, verse 31, you discover the new covenant. Somebody is coming to restore the relationship with Israel. 
And what he is saying is this, this Jesus is that one. Jesus will end our exile. And so, chapters 1 and 2, if you're taking notes, he is the Savior, the promised one, the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed uh, that will bless the world. He is the center of human history. He is the perfect man, the God of very God. He is the shepherd of the weak. He is the worship of the wise. He is the one who will uh, inaugurate a new exodus, and he will end our exile. Chapter 3. Finally, Jesus is on the scene as an adult. John the Baptist shares some stuff with us. Chapter 3, verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and he said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this it was spoken by the prophet. Again, this is Isaiah, Isaiah 40 and verse 3. He said this, The voice of one is crying in the wilderness. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the what? That's it, the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now, in our Greek rendering of that word, Lord, is kurios. It's little L, little O-R, little R-D. But if you go back to where it's actually found in Isaiah 40 and verse 3, it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, which is the name for Yahweh, Jehovah God. That is who he's actually making the way for. So what he is saying is this, Jesus is the sovereign God. That's the one who's coming. Oh my gosh, he's trying to set us up to understand who this one is. It's about to speak. And he goes on to say this, John the Baptist says in verse 11 of chapter 3, he goes this, not only is he the sovereign God, but he's also the righteous judge. Verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but when he, comes at, he who comes after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, and he will baptize you with what? The holy and that's it. He's going to baptize some with the Holy Spirit and make them his children. He's going to baptize some with fire in eternal destruction. So what he's talking about, he goes on this. He says, and his winnowing fork is in his hand. That's a term for the separation of things. And he will clear the threshing floor and he will gather the wheat into the barn. Those are his. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He is the righteous judge. That's this one. That's this one. So moving forward. Uh, we now see that he has come to the point of being baptized by John the Baptist. In verse 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and resting upon him. Jesus is fully uh, filled with the Holy Spirit. Fully filled with the Holy Spirit. But not only that, he is fully loved by God the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So, who is Jesus? This one that we all knew that was talking here. He is the Savior. He is the promised one. He is the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that will bless the world. He is the center of human history. He is the perfect man, God of very God. He is the shepherd of the weak. He is the worship of the wise. He is the one who inaugurates a new exodus. He is the one who will end our exile. He is sovereign God and he is the righteous judge. He is filled with the spirit and he's loved by the father. We're almost there. We're in chapter four. I told you it wouldn't take us too, too long, but we're getting there. Chapter four. It says this, and Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Our first father was tempted by the devil, the first Adam. How did that go? Not so good. Jesus here is being positioned as the second Adam, the new Adam. 
And when he was tempted, he did not give in. So he is now being positioned as the new Adam. But in verses 2 through 11, we have this struggle with him and the devil. And what we're seeing is the testing going on. And this testing tells us that Jesus is actually also the true Israel. It says this, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, the number 40 in scripture is always a number of testing. And so the children of Israel went through the desert for 40 years being tested and they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed and they failed. Then finally they got to the edge of the promised land and then we have Deuteronomy where it's the second giving of the law to prepare God's people to go into the promised land to live for God. It is no mistake The two of the answers Jesus gives the devil come from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses was saying, guys, get ready. Because you're about to go into the promised land and you honor God. And they went in and they failed. And they failed. And they failed. But Jesus did not fail. He is indeed the true son of God, obedient to the very end. That brings us to the last verse from the Old Testament and the last two observations about Jesus. And you all said amen, right? This one is found in verse 15 of chapter 4. It said this, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, this comes from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, the Gentiles refer to the nations, not Israel, but the nations. And so here, Jesus is positioned as the hope of the nations. And the reason he is, is because he is the light of the world. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Nineteen clear allusions, illustrations, and scriptures to affirm who this Jesus truly is. One last time, and then I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, You'll have to stand up and recite these, so just get this when I do this. Ha, ha, ha. He is the Savior. He is the promised one of God, the eternal Davidic King. He is the seed that will bless the nations. Jesus is the center of all human history. He is the perfect man. He is fully God. He is the shepherd of the weak. He is the worship of the wise. He inaugurates a new exodus. He will end our exile. Jesus is sovereign God. He is the righteous judge. He is filled with the spirit. He is loved by the father. He is the new Adam. He is the true Israel. He is the hope of the nations and he is the light of the world. Do you have a little different view of Jesus? Verse 17 of chapter 4. The very first word out of Jesus' mouth is what? What? I can't hear you. Isn't that something? The very first word out of Jesus' mouth after all of this imagery preparing us to understand exactly who this one is, the first word out of his mouth is repent. You know, um, we're now looking at what it means to be a disciple. We've already looked at Jesus. Now we're talking about what it means to be a disciple. And I have to, it, it begins with Repentance. You see, repentance is when you accurately understand who you are in light of who he is. 
And when you understand Jesus Christ to be these many appellations that we have given to him that Matthew has actually prepared us to see, the only response when humanity encounters divinity, the only response when depravity bumps into the divine is repentance. This past week I was working with somebody and we're doing that man called Jesus study. And we're talking about that moment where the the relationship really starts. And the relationship, uh, we were talking about it, and, and, and so I was talking about, you know, it's that moment, it's, it's, it's that moment where you kind of get it. It's that moment where you understand who he is and who you are in light of him, and, and your response is appropriate. And the way it was put, and I don't know if he's here or not, but the way he said it is, oh, you mean that aha uh-huh moment? Uh-huh. It's that aha uh-huh moment. Well, all of a sudden, you realize who he is and who you are in light of him, and your response is to fall at his feet. I mean, how can you do anything else? He's God. I'm not. He's holy. I'm not. The response of the true heart that gets who God really is is repentance. And that's where you fall on the ground in front of him. And you say, who am I? Oh, God, who am I? We get snapshots of these little aha moments in the various characters of Scripture. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet, after he said, in Isaiah chapter 6, he said, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. His, his train came out of the temple. It was so glorious. He, in light of that moment, said this, Who am I? For I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips. In Luke chapter 5, we get Peter, where Jesus said, throw your net in over here. And Peter pulls in this huge bunch of fish so that the whole thing's getting ready to sink. And all of a sudden, he put one and one together. He said, throw it in. We got more fish than we ever get in a day. He's not just a rabbi. He's so much more. And in that moment, he said this, oh, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. He had his aha moment. He realized who Jesus really was in that moment. Have you had your aha moment? Because that's what disciples are. Disciples are people who repent. They actually get that, you know, Jesus isn't standing there with hat in hand, kind of wringing it, saying, oh, I really want you to believe in me. Would you really believe in me? Please believe me. Oh, come on, just give me Sunday. That's all I want. Just give me Sunday. Work me into your schedule. That's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is this. I'm God. If you want a relationship with me, it's about me. Ready? Who am I, oh God, that I can stand in the presence of someone so perfect? And in that moment of humility, Jesus put it like this at one point. He said this, unless you become like a little child, you can't be mine. And a little child is one who's humble and doesn't know much and, and is willing to put their hand just so, so gently into the hand of somebody they trust and they're willing to be led wherever they go. Unless you become like a little child, you can't be mine. Uh, remember Nicodemus, the guy Nicodemus? Nicodemus was called the teacher in all of Israel, which meant that he was brilliant. It meant that he had memorized the entire Torah and all of the interpretations of the other rabbis down through the centuries as they had made all the questions about the Torah. He knew all of that stuff. He was considered the teacher in all of Israel. And Jesus' first words to Nicodemus when he encountered him were what? You've got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, what? I was expecting a good give and take on the rabbis' traditions of the past. And you tell me I've got to be born again? He had no concept of what Jesus was saying, but this is what Jesus was saying. Hey, Nicodemus, 
You're such a know-it-all. You got all this stuff. You got all this righteousness. You got all this obedience to the law. You got all this knowledge. You have to take all this stuff and put it over here. And you have to start all over again with me. That's what it means to be born again. Repentance. Putting it away. Embracing him for who he is. And grateful that you have that privilege. So, chapter 4, verse 17 says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does verse 19 say? It says what? There we go. Follow me. This is what a disciple is, friends. A disciple is somebody who has repented, seeing themselves in light of who he is, and is laying on their face in, in just the, the sheer wonder of God in, in encroaching or, or touching me. And then you listen and he says this, get up. Now follow me. It's not help me follow you. It's not add me to your schedule and pray that I will bless all the plans you've already made. Oh, dear one, you've got to become like a little child. You need to be born again. You need to take your life and put it aside and follow him. That's a disciple. That's a disciple. Okay, so we've kind of answered these first two questions. Who's speaking here? It's who? Oh, you're not giving me back the answer I want. The answer is, he's the Savior, the promised one, the eternal Davidic king. He is the seed that will bless the world. He is Jesus, the center of history. He is perfect man, fully God. He is the shepherd of the weak. He is the worship of wisdom. He is the one who inaugurates a new exodus. He will end our exile. He is the sovereign God, the righteous judge, filled with the spirit, loved by the Father, the new Adam, the true Israel, the hope of the nations, the light of the world then who is he speaking to? Those who have repented and are now following him. And the answer to the third one is in verse 19 as well. Follow me and I will make you. Bingo. That is the mandate that Jesus gives to the church. That is what he is calling us to, to engage individuals with the gospel, not the culture with good deeds. It's individuals. In fact, Matthew says that there in, in Matthew chapter 4 in verse uh, 17, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And it just so happens that he ends his book with much the same uh, affirma- comment, the same affirmation. Matthew chapter 28, the very end of the book says this, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus Go, therefore, and make what? Make disciples. Don't change the culture. Don't do good. Be good. Engage people with salt and light so that they can know who I am. This is the greater context. These are bookends, if you will, that everything else is meant to flow out of. I will make you fishers of men. Go and make disciples. So when we start talking salt and light, let's not get all nebulous. Let's not get all cultural. Let's get real. It's about real people who need a real relationship with a real God, and he will winnow this world. Those who are his, he will take with him. Those who aren't, he will eternally burn with fire. He is the righteous judge. So let's stop calling everything salt and light. And let's get serious Let's be real salt, real light. 
in, the peop- in people's lives. Oh my gosh, Bill, look at the time. Where are you going, man? Let me talk about how we can do that. Oh, actually, let me just give you my final summation of how I think this could actually be understood uh, in case you're taking notes. Uh, I believe Jesus' intention here is that he is talking about intentionally making disciples. Again, 419 in Matthew 28, 19 through the end of the book. Affirm that is the goal of the people that are followers of Christ. And so but basically what he's saying is that with radically transformed lives, and the Sermon on the Mount shows us what that looks like, as fully dedicated followers, we purposefully flavor the lives and light the way of lost individuals to meet Jesus as their Savior and Lord. Thus causing these new disciples to glorify God as their Father. That would be my contention of what this is all about. Now, practically speaking, how do we do that? Well, as we talk about flavoring and people and, and savoring people to meet the Savior. You know, um, ever heard of salt pork? <laughs> yeah. The point of this whole endeavor, this fun time, is we're having a church picnic. How many like food? How many like bacon? Say amen. I, I need to hear some response here. I think I've put you into la-la land or something. You're all a little dull right now. That's the point of this. It is to help people see the love that we have for one another so that we can flavor their lives, that Jesus wants to show that kind of love toward them. And so, using Courtney again, (laughs) you know, rather than salt, we could actually use some sweet and smoky barbecue rub. (laughs) By the way, I put the cap on. (laughs) But you see, it's not just sodium chloride. It's actually an opportunity to truly flavor people's lives in a beautiful way, showing them the wonderful love that we have. And so that's what that day is about. I hope you've got somebody in mind. I hope you're inviting somebody. I hope you're going to connect somebody. We're going to eat ourselves silly. By the way, do you want to know what my first impression, the name I wanted for this was? The name that I wanted to call this event was Pig Out. (laughs) Dennis said, Bill, that's not right. (laughs) I say, what's wrong with that? He goes, it sounds like gluttony. Well, that's what we do. Come on, let's be honest. It's gluttony. That's what we're going to practice on that day. So we'll, we'll, we'll just have confession afterward or something. I don't know. So, so Bacon Fest is about flavoring and savoring the lives of people around us, our neighbors, our unchurched uh, associates, our, our family members who aren't connected to Christ or the local church. And then the next day, we will encourage people to stick around, not overnight, but to come back on Sunday Uh, to this thing called Back to Church Sunday, a place to belong. We went to all this beautiful work to make the sanctuary and all like it is to create a a very pleasant space, a place to belong. I'm just going to show you a quick little video clip that's associated with this series. I hope you'll find it helpful.